Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 13. I'll be reading in a moment, chapter 13, verses 4 through 12. Let's pray. Father, your presence is sweet this morning by the Spirit. Your gospel has been sung loudly. For us who believe it is so good to have been grabbed hold of by you. And I ask you now as a pastor, as a teacher, as a preacher, this morning, carry me. So that this text sings and is handled faithfully. And cause us to hear it with our minds, to see it, to grasp it, and love it with our hearts, to the flourishing of your people. In the great and mighty name of Jesus. Amen. What our passage shows us this morning is that our gospel witness for us who are believers in this world brings us constantly into a battle, a battle with the enemy, the enemy of salvation in Jesus Christ, the enemy of the gospel. And therefore, as believers, we need to grasp how he works, his schemes, in order that we would do spiritual battle against him in our lives. So if you're there, starting with verse 4, chapter 13. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, fool of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished 
at the teaching of the Lord. Blessed is the reading of God's holy word. Here the Apostle Paul is very aware that what he was encountering was not just a man, but demonic powers working through the man in order to divert the governor of the island away from the gospel, from hearing it and believing and being changed. His goal, because it was demonic, he was a son of the devil, was to turn this governor away from the clear, straight path of the Lord and make it crooked now in Acts this is one of only four instances that Luke gives us where anyone is confronting demonic activity Luke also uses the term Satan a couple times in Acts Satan means adversary devil means the accuser. And these words refer to that one angelic being who rebelled against God and took with him about one-third of the angelic host who then became demons. Satan and the unseen, non-physical demons are an unseen spiritual army. And they're at war with truth. They're at war with the truth. They are at war with the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can indwell people. They can influence human beings. That's why the Apostle Paul, we know in Ephesians, calls us all to put on the whole armor of God in order that we would wage war against these unseen forces so that we would stand against their influence, their evil forces on our own lives and on behalf of others. Because there are various, as Paul would say, schemes, tricks of the devil. Oh, he is often the angel of light. That's why it's tricky. Jesus himself told us that Satan is very active around the preaching of the gospel. He said he's active doing what? Snatching away the seed that's planted in the minds, in the hearts. Snatching away the seed, which is the word of God, which is the gospel of Christ. And so here we see now Elymas, a man who is a pawn of Satan, trying to keep Sergius Paulus away from believing in the gospel. So the overall lesson here is clear. Anything, anything Satan can do to keep people from hearing and believing the gospel, he'll do it. 2 Corinthians 4.4 lets us know the core, the number one job that he has and he is all about. And that is keeping 
people in darkness, keeping them blind to the truth of Jesus Christ. Paul says it this way, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, he does mean here Satan, the devil, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers in order to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How does he do that? That'd be good if we have any idea. How does he do that? Here's the answer. Any way that he possibly can, that's how he does it. Anything he can use to turn people away from seeing, from following Christ, he'll use it. He'll see a young man start to show interest in the gospel of Christ. Start to attend Sunday church services and, and Bible studies for two and a half, three months in, and then lo and behold, out of the blue, the perfect, beautiful, sweet, nice, unbelieving woman captures his heart. And she is sweet, and she is nice, and she is beautiful, and she's a really good person. They almost always are. And he falls in love. And he drifts away from considering giving his life to Christ. She has been used by the devil as an instrument. A young man up in the city of Lystra in Galatia where Paul and Barnabas will go was there and they heard Paul and Barnabas preach the gospel and he became a part of this new community and everything was going great. And then out of the blue, he gets this job offer that will triple his salary. And so he takes it because he knows God had to have done that Satan would never triple my salary. Takes the job. He's got to travel all over the Roman Empire and he has to, in order to keep his job, practice deceptive, lying business tactics. And so he must compromise his moral compass. And he does. And his commitment to Christ that was seemingly there is shattered. His heart becomes harder towards God than it was at the beginning. But his barns, filled with money, filled with things, filled with security, content him with this present Satan will give spouses. He'll give houses, educational opportunities, 
bank accounts. And this is why our walk is so difficult. So will God. So will God. And so our master tells us in trying to walk this walk about all of these things, seek first the kingdom of God. Always, every day, in everything. And then all of these things, the necessities of life, they will be given to you. And so in this passage, Luke shows us that the devil, he will use deceit, he will use fraud, he will use opposition in order to carry out his evil ways. There in verse 10, Paul, by the Holy Spirit, says, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit, In villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Full of deceit. That's trickery. That, That word deceit actually is a word also used in order to catch an animal in a trap, right? You don't say, come here and die. You say, come here and eat this delicious food. The animal is deceived. And here it clearly refers to what Elymas is all about. He's a false prophet. He's out for different spelling. Prophet. Okay. He's most likely getting a normal regular salary here from the governor. He sees a threat to his livelihood. And he will use any trickery that he can. And Satan uses that. Through him. Villainy, you can translate it fraud, that's just what his life is about. He's a con artist, he's a fraud, he's a man who has no ethical restraints. If it benefits him, everything is fair game. Paul is a prophet. Luke says Elymas here is a Jewish false prophet. Sound a little familiar if you know your Old Testament? This is the battle of the prophets here. Elymas is a deceiver who leads people away from the straight path. Makes it. Just bend it. Make it look close. He takes what's clear. And he makes it blurry. He takes what's straight. And he makes it crooked. And that's what makes him an enemy of all righteousness. He's doing the will of his father, the devil. And that's why the hand of the Lord we see in this passage is against him. Satan is all about slight of hand. He's all about deceit. Any way he can in order to undermine the cross of Christ. It's everywhere in our day, in our culture. 
Just that. Satan's work. The, the underlying philosophical assumption of our culture today is there is no such thing as truth. No such thing as actual, objective, right or wrong. Therefore, there is no such thing as sin, really. And therefore, there is no need for the cross. The philosophical assumptions just sweeping the land and the university system and the culture. It is not a thing that the church can say, let's become more like the culture to win them to Jesus because the very core of that worldview is a direct attack upon Christ Jesus, the gospel. There is, at the core of that, to be no compromise. Elemis is very alive and well today. The devil has many sons. And their doctrines always look delicious. They look very non-religious if that's what people want. And they look very religious if that's what people want. He's all into religion and spirituality. Be spiritual. True spirituality is you get to choose what's true for you according to your likes and your dislikes. Whatever helps you get along through this short life better than you would otherwise if it helps you, then good must be true for you. These are schemes. These are tricks of the devil. We are to know the enemy, to know his schemes. That's the first part of this sermon, which leads to the second. Knowing the devil his schemes, his trickery. Our passage guides us, I can see, four ways that we are to constantly be prepared for that. First is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Second is to understand that at the core, the issue in the battleground has to do mainly with truth versus error. Third thing we see in here is to develop a nose for those who are really hungry and asking real questions about the gospel, particularly. And fourth is, be very clear. Just be clear with the gospel that has been handed down to us. So, first, we're desperate to be filled with the Spirit in our lives and a constant basis. In verse 9 we read, Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and engaged. Now, I know Paul is an apostle. 
It's a unique first century office, particularly with the signs of an apostle and that kind of miracle working. And he's going to be struck blind. But there are lessons for every believer down through the ages here. This is the flow throughout Luke's book of the works of the Holy Spirit in all believers. But the point here is, before Paul engaged and called this man out, Luke says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit is to be empowered by the Spirit for a task. Or it's coming under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Or, or coming under the guidance of God Himself. The Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Guiding us to say or do or act. Or refuse to do this, that, or the other. That's why throughout the New Testament, we're commanded to walk by the Spirit. Walk by the guidance of the Spirit. We're commanded to be filled with the Holy Spirit in Ephesians. We're commanded to draw near to the Lord. And He will draw near to you to come into the presence of the Lord by the Spirit. What's the way to go about that? This is the number one way. Focused prayer. Whether that's prayer alone talking, prayer being sung, however you do that. It is focused prayer while looking to the Scripture. It's the Scripture where you find yourself praying Scripture more than just thoughts to come to your mind. It is engaging by the Holy Spirit, our Heavenly Father, our great Lord Jesus, through the Word of God. Now, I can give you many texts, but I just want to point to one. I might throw in two. But 2 Corinthians chapter. 3, verse 17 18, Paul writes, And now the Lord, listen to his words, the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now you got, stop. Without going back, this is the context of what he's doing. The context is looking at the written Word of God, the Hebrew Scripture. This is the context. Where many people read it, and there's a veil. They can't really see it. For what it really says, and engage it, and believe it, and be changed by it. It just becomes religion. But then he says, when one comes to Jesus, the veil is lifted up. And so he still, in this context, has us believers, the church, before the written Word of God. So now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And thus this, and we all, as believers, with unveiled face, with the written Word before us, beholding in it 
the glory of the Lord. And we are thus being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Why? Because this comes from the Lord through the Word, who is the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. When Paul tells us, To be ready for spiritual battle in Ephesians 6, he says this. Take up the sword of the Spirit. Okay? What's that? Y'all can finish it. Take up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Praying. Praying. At all times in the Spirit. Take up the Word. Praying. It's key to the battle. Being filled with the Spirit. The second thing our passage guides us to in our preparation is this. It is to know something. It is to know that much of the spiritual battleground in our lives out there as the church in the world, as evangelists in the world, much of it is over error. Theological error. False claims versus truth claims. Starting with verse 8. Elemis, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them Barnabas and Saul, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. That's his goal. That's big error. That's coming against the truth. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit, not truth, and villainy, fraud, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? Now, not all Errors need strong confrontation like this. Some errors, often many errors, particularly as we engage one another in church life, just need gentle guidance and time in order for one of us to come to a better knowledge of the truth. But error that keeps people from believing in Jesus for salvation, like what is happening here, which was the intention, that is serious. And that needs clear, direct correction. And being filled with the Holy Spirit, therefore, is extremely important and helpful in judging the level of confrontation that we need. What I mean is this. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 5.14. Admonish. That's strong. 
Warn. Be clear and direct. Woe if there isn't change. Admonish who though? The unruly. Or another way to translate by the undisciplined, just the slothful in their lives. Or I'm a Christian. And okay. Admonish the unruly and undisciplined. He goes on though. He says, but encourage the faint-hearted. Okay, there's a big difference. I'm just weary. I know I look. I'm just. I just am so beaten down. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. There you go. Weak. Maybe their conscience is weak, as Paul would say elsewhere. No, but, but they're weak, okay? But they got a stance I don't believe in. I don't, and they make it so I know that. Just be patient. They're weak. But be patient with all people. Admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak. To obey this, we must have discernment as to whether a person is unruly, rebellious, or just faint-hearted, weak. We all know and see in Scripture Jesus' tenderness. And boy, can He be tender. Come unto me. Come unto me. But we also know that he reserved his most severe confrontation, particularly for spiritual leaders who claimed to know the truth and were unbending in their error. And they were dead wrong and they were leading others astray. And that's where you see him, more like you see Paul in our passage. When false teaching on important, clear, central gospel issues, when they arise, we are not being loving if we remain silent. We are in a war, and the battleground is over ideas. It is over worldviews. It is over the clarity of the gospel itself that saves repentant, faith-filled believers who were sinners and are sinners. Third, in that context then, know where error is, be filled with the Spirit, we ought to really have our noses trained to smell out those persons who show a real interest in the things of God. And say you don't preach the gospel to others. But in our text, notice what it says in verse 7. He, that is, the false prophet, was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now, you got to ask, right, when you read your Bible slowly and you ask, okay, why did Luke 
These years later, look at him. Why did he say it that way? Okay, this is what I think. Why did he say he's a man of intelligence? Just because his high Q was really huge? I don't think that's what he meant. I think what he's clearly saying, he's a man of intelligence. It was that this man was a thinker, but not just a thinker. He was thinking carefully about spiritual matters, eternal matters. And that's why Luke tells us he summoned, have those guys, those gospel, Jesus, preacher, whatever they're doing, have them come to me. I want to hear what they have to say. That's what the text says. He wanted to hear them talk about this Jesus guy. About salvation of the soul before our Creator. He called them to come, the passage says, because, quote, he sought to hear the word of God. Now, strange. Because we who know our, we know our Bibles, we know that no one seeks the Lord on their own. Romans 3. On their own, they don't. So this is what I want to say. Whenever a person is showing interest, like really, tell me more. An unbeliever. A real interest in spiritual and eternal matters. We can safely, it's not 100%, but know this, safely assume that God is at work doing something in that person's heart. And thus, we should be all the more delighted to make time and to talk about the gospel with such people. Because not, not always, but often, there is sooner, sometimes even much later, eternal fruit from such conversations. Let me just give a couple personal examples. I, I was the first person in my large family to have a conversion experience to Jesus. So for four and a half years, I was all alone. My siblings' ears were deaf to the gospel. You ever experienced that? Come into your family, Jesus is great, and you preach, okay. Then you learn, okay, i got to stop preaching to him. <laughs> and you'd be nice. And it was just no interest. Death. Four and a half years in, one of my brothers flies in for Christmas, and there we sat in the kitchen Christmas Eve, and he started asking me questions about sin, about eternal life, about hell, about judgment, and about Jesus. And that conversation went for a few hours. Three months later, I get a call. Which, we don't call each other. <laughs> I get a call. And he says, well, I'm just calling to tell you, I'm a Christian now. Six years after I graduated high school, my 1979 championship team got together to play the the present high school baseball team 
in a game. And those of you, some of you know about El Segundo, everybody knows everybody's business. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of the guys in numbers of years. A few I'd run into, you know, and I would be the Jesus freak, okay? But everybody knew as we're sitting there stretching, Joe Lumet's a Jesus freaking Christian. After the game, we all go down to the local bar and we hang out and 14 or 15 of my teammates, as they come over to where I was sitting and having a conversation about Jesus, clearly, ooh, going back over there, okay. But three of them, that's why I was having a conversation with you, three of them, when we got there, surrounded me with deep interest in order to ask me questions about life and death and sin and Jesus and the gospel. About five years later, I find out two of them are strong, Jesus-loving Christians. Seek them out. When they smell them, give them the gospel. Sergius Paulus, I want to hear. Often, there's great fruit. And fourth and finally, one of the ongoing tactics in waging spiritual battle for the souls of others is to present the teaching of God's Word clearly. It doesn't need our help. Give it as clearly as we've been given in the Scripture. Our passage calls this the faith in verse 8. It calls it the teaching of the Lord in verse 12. Both of them refer to the direct, clear gospel of grace in Jesus Christ. Verse 8, Elymas opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. What that means is the body of doctrine, the gospel, Christ, his incarnation, his life, his righteousness for us, his sacrificial atonement, his death, and God raised him from the dead, and there are many witnesses to this. Believe and be saved. The faith. Verse 12. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred. For, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Now, now clearly the miracle Paul striking Elymas blind was shocking. But he was really amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Why? Paul and Barnabas had been going throughout the synagogues of this island of Cyprus, 80 miles. Now, so obviously, some believe, but we know the pattern. Most were not amazed at this teaching. They were either indifferent 
or hated it and came against it. And then Luke brings us to the end of the island of Cyprus and he brings out this one, one account of one conversion on Cyprus. And he was amazed at the teaching of the Lord. Why? Many weren't when they preached. And it wasn't therefore because they weren't charismatic enough or skillful enough. They preached the same gospel. And we talked to all kinds of people, friends and family, workmates in life about the gospel, not amazed. But then someone is. What's the difference? Why Sergius Paulus says there, he believed. The difference is 2 Corinthians 4.6. We saw the scheme of the devil which comes right before this which I quoted earlier. He has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But then he says, well, what happened to Sergius Paulus who now sees? For God who said, remember when he created the heavens and the earth, let there be light. And then, Light was. God who said, let light shine out of darkness. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so his eyes were open to the clarity of the straight paths of the Lord that Paul and Barnabas preached. Sergius Paulus sensed deeply in his soul, through the message preached, the love of God. And thus, a joy in God just sprung up in him. He saw the promise in the gospel of what his soul always longed for. Eternal joy. A way to deal with my guilt. And the promise of a resurrection unto the enjoyment of God's glory forever. So for him, the cross of Jesus, it was the answer. It made all the sense in the world to him. Because the gospel was preached. And it was preached clearly. They didn't try to fudge it. Try to discern his own particular felt need at the time. They preached the gospel. And that gospel clarity is our greatest weapon in this spiritual warfare that we Christians have for our own lives as we're attacked and for the lives of others that we want to see come to Christ. 
And so, on this last Sunday, that Serge and Trish are with us here, I'm going to slug myself in the head in a minute. While they're with us here at Sovereign Grace Fellowship, not here in this world, in our lives. Before we bless them and pray for them, which we're going to do after communion at the end of the service, I want to say, It is that gospel. It is that gospel clarity. It is that eye-opening work. Of the Holy Spirit. It's saved. Too stupid, young, dumb, lost kids back in right around 1981. That's how we met. It was because of Jesus. It was in Jesus. It will continue to be in Jesus. And then down the road, God blessed him and me which is amazing with wives and families who grew up together and love each other. So before we all partake of communion this morning, I want to... I could read this Three and a half minutes. Praying it's not going to take me 40 minutes to do it, though. But if anyone deserves in the life of sovereign grace to be acknowledged and thanked for all of their wonderful faithfulness, their work of faith, and their labor of love for the past 16 years. It is Serge and Trish. Solid and faithful has been the fruit of your lives. By the Holy Spirit to us. The two of you have been pillars in this church over the years, always faithful, always giving, always sacrificial. You, you have been utterly hospitable, opening your, your home again and again to feed people, to have connection with people. Not to mention the untold countless times you've opened your home for home groups or youth groups or prayer meetings over the years. We, in Sovereign Grace, are deeply thankful for you both. For your, and I'm going to keep saying this word, your faithful 
participation in body life with your time, with your giftings, and with your money. Now, A minute. <laughs> so, Trish, the verse that jumps out to me about you is First Peter three eight. Finally, all of you have sympathy. Brotherly love, a tender heart. Now, I know you women had a five-hour <laughs> women's group. I have no idea what was said to you, Trish, as you guys shared things about it. So, if this copies some people, trust me, I have no clue, because this is obvious. Thank you for your tender, loving care to so many of us at Sovereign Grace over the years. If you have reached out to pray for, to console, or when we get that occasion, to rejoice with us all. You are known for your warmth. It's a gift. You're known for your compassion. You're known for your caring concern for the well-being, the feelings, which are really important, of others. I also want to say on behalf of all the children who many are not children anymore, raised up in this church that you taught and that you preached to with all of your heart. I think at least 12 years of that you were a Sunday school teacher in the off in the on. On behalf of them, thank you. Children, we all know that, even us who are older people now. Children, even when they become adults, never forget the impact of their teachers when they were kids. And so, Trish, for your heart, for Jesus, your love for Jesus that you have overflowed and you have shared with us here and for all of your faithfulness and your faithful service. Thank you. Serge, the verse that jumps out to me for you Proverbs 20, verse 6. Whew. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. From all the years before we ever went to the same church together, you're that man. Through all the years here at Sovereign Grace, I found that man faithful. You have always stepped up when there is need.
in this church. And I mean always. No matter what you were going through in life, easy time or hard times, you never turned me down when I needed you to fill this pulpit. And I know why you didn't do it. Because you're a servant and because you're faithful and because you care. And then you would step in here time and time again and faithfully and skillfully deliver the Word of God. Throughout all these years, when you would look around thinking, this is not my number one passion and gift in life, play a guitar and to sing. But you would look around and you would see, well, there's no one to lead worship. I'll do it. I'll do it. I'll do it. And you did because you're a servant, because you're faithful. And then you did it. And you led us with your heart and you led us with your love for our great, wonderful Lord Jesus into the presence of the Lord time and time again. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? You're a man who feels deeply and loves well. And just for this time here, for the rest of our lives, but for this time here, I want to personally thank you for your Christ-centered, passionate love for Jesus that you displayed and for your Christ-centered input into my kids' lives. As a man, as a masculine man, as a Jesus-loving Man, as a man who loves and stands for truth and into the lives of others raised up in this church. Your motto has always been, you never said this is my motto, but you would say this to me. And this is his motto. And I don't know a higher calling for any of us Christians ever than this motto. This motto is this. I'm here to serve. Is it? That isn't going to get done. You realize, shoot, I guess not. It's got to get done. I'll do it. And so I want to say to you on behalf of this body, thank you for your love, for your care, and for your faithfulness. Well done. You have been a faithful servant of the Lord and to us, this body. Gosh, we love you guys. We're now going to serve communion. And so all who are baptized, believers in Jesus, we partake, you grab hold of it. We will wait and pray over them together.